From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue in deliberate, mapped out Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. In this episode, we discuss ways that game developers can approach self-education with the keynote speaker from this year's GlitchCon, Freya Holmer of Neat Corporation, creator of the groundbreaking VR self-game Budget Cuts. And so, if everyone's ready, let's start. Freya, how'd we do with that intro? Uh, I think it was, it was okay. Okay. Should we, <laughs> should we roll back and give it another? Seven out of ten. <laughs> Seven, Seven out of ten. ten. All right. That's passing. <laughs> uh, listeners, uh, you're hearing all the way from Sweden, uh, Freya Holmer, uh, who's joining us remotely. Um, welcome to the program. Oh, the, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, it's very nice of you. And simultaneously, we are on your uh, live Twitch stream. Right. Yeah, I have a humble little Twitch stream. I generally stream uh, game development, um, but uh, yeah, I... I often go off on tangents. There, there are a lot of people who are new to game development or questions or mm-hmm. people who uh, want to hear about the state of politics or whatever. <laughs> and to go on a lot of tangents and not talk too much about video games all the time. But I like that attitude of like, it's not just the topic of game development, but like where it lives in the wider world. So I think that, that I think that's a great approach to just mm-hmm. to not, you know, limit yourself to like, I'm just about this, you know? So um, we yeah, appreciate sure. it. I, I guess, um, I guess all of these things are very tied together in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, although I very rarely talk about like how these politics influence uh, game development. It's mm-hmm. more, I don't know, about the, the most recent Trump tweet or something. <laughs> <laughs> things that affect game development, but uh, <laughs> oh well. Uh, so as I mentioned in the, in the opening, um, Freya, you were the keynote speaker at GlitchCon. So you uh, only recently got back home. Uh, so uh, how did it go? How did you like the Twin Cities? Uh, it was nice. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Um, I guess I don't have like too many points of reference. I tend to <laughs> only go to the states whenever I, there are events or yeah. game developer stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I only go there for like I don't know, like three days, and then I go to the event and then I go home. So <laughs> right. I have a lot of time to explore the cities. Right. Um, but this time I did go here for a week, so that was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, just meeting up with different developers, uh, going out for dinner with with you, Mark, mm-hmm. for instance, and yeah, that that was super nice. Cool. Um, I don't yeah. know. I, I really like the, um, the the indie community here. It seems to be pretty tied together. Uh, or maybe it just seems that way because I've only been in those circles. <laughs> right. You're just there, sort of in right? the heart of it. Um, and so it feels really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that's something that doesn't really exist here in Stockholm. Um, it's kind of, I don't know. I don't know why. We have a lot of indie developers, I think, but they just never connect really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we've never really had a cohesive game, like game dev community here in terms of indie developers. Oh, interesting. Um, which, which is kind of strange, right? Because we, we, we do have the developers. Um, and we do have a community of like AAA game developers here, but um, they're very, um, I don't know, so they're tied together, but not really the indie part, which is, mm. I don't know, huh. it's kind of strange. Yeah. Um, I, I know that a lot of the success that we have in that area is because we have organizations like Glitch and we have our IDGA chapter that does monthly meetings. And so we encourage a lot of like actual physical meetups. Yeah. Um, and I think that helps a lot. Uh, like I'm not one to say that like being in person is better than being online. But it encourages you to stay connected to people, even if that ultimately ends up being online. Um, and so that's that's been nice for this community, anyway. Yeah, yeah. You tend to make the closer connections in real life too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think, um, um, yeah, yeah. But I think there are some barriers that makes it hard to do this in Sweden, uh, where uh, <laughs> there's a bit of a cultural thing where. Um, Swedish people tend to be very reserved, mm-hmm. um, and if you have a, you know, if there's a, um, if there's a community or like a, an entire society that's very reserved, and then you combine that with the fact that a lot of the indie developers are pretty introvert, <laughs> then it's hard to 
friends, right? It's hard for people to like go and meet people, um, which is, you know, whenever there's some sort of expat in, um, uh, in Sweden, somebody who's like immigrated or something, they constantly tell me that it's so hard to like find friends here because nobody wants to meet up. Everybody just wants to leave everybody to their own, you know, devices, um, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, whereas in, in the United States, it's completely different, right? Yeah. Um, like it's more socially accepted to just talk to random people. That's more like a courtesy in some cases, even. Uh, whereas in Sweden, it's like, oh, don't talk to anyone. You gotta be <laughs> for talking to someone, right? It's gonna be like you need direction somewhere, or like you, you need to have a specific reason to talk to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that reason is kind of weird if you go like, hey, I want to make friends. Who are you? It's, I don't know. It's strange. Yeah, we're a forward people. I would say <laughs> you are. I mean, and sometimes for better or for worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, you, when you were here, you were saying you were going to try to make it to the Mall of America. Did you make it? I did. And was it as everything you hoped it would be? <laughs> uh, I mean, it was very. Uh, I, I don't know how to. I mean, I went into a mall. It had like four <laughs> stories. Uh, it was massive, and there was like an amusement park in the center. It was like, yeah. this is like the most American thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> like, the only thing that's missing is like a bunch of homeless people around the place or something, and then it's complete, right? Um, anyway, yeah. So, so yeah, I went there, uh, had a burger at Shake Shack. I guess it's also a very American thing. <laughs> but, uh, um, that's very Yeah, American. it was nice. I walked around a bunch of stores. I was trying to find clothes, um, which is hard. So, sure. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't find that much, but yeah. <laughs> It was nice. I think that's the local experience too. It's yes. like, oh wow, and then you leave with almost nothing. Yeah, <laughs> like this. It's like eh, it was okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just walked around in so many stores, and then I was like, well, I, there's so many things, and I don't know if I want any of these things, but I kind of do, but kind of not, and then left with almost nothing. So. Right, right. Yeah, that's literally all mall experiences. <laughs> I swear. For the discerning <laughs> shopper, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a type that goes in and just like, oh, and just goes get the thing and get out, and, yeah. or just like the enjoyment of purchasing whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's true. Sounds like I'm like ragging on that person, but like, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever makes you happy. It's efficient. I can, I can respect that. <laughs> yeah. I don't well, know. It is kind of hard to find things when you don't like know your direction, right? If you have a specific item you know you want, then yeah. that's fine. You just go and get it. But if you don't know, then I, I guess it's hard for every single store to cater to your preferences and what you like. So, right. I don't right. know. That's probably going to be hard. And it's, it's um, worse if you have any taste because then you're much more like you're less willing to pick something up at are, random. Are you claiming that the entire Mall of, Mall of America is tasteless? Or, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. You know, I have, to, I have to live here. So, uh, Well, you mentioned the, you know, the focus of your stream kind of splits off into different topics. And I think that's a good segue into um, the topic we're going to talk about, which is about game dev self-education. And that ties into um, what you talked about in your keynote um, about this sort of nodes of knowledge, um, which I thought was really fascinating mm-hmm. and a really interesting way of approaching that. Could you sort of summarize that for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I, I suppose when, when it comes to learning, uh, there are different ways of approaching this, right? Um, you can, uh, you, like, I like to split them up into different categories. So uh, so just to illustrate the, the, the thought process, I guess you can sort of visualize a, a two-dimensional space of nodes. Uh, and these nodes are like vertically interconnected. Um, and at the top of these nodes, you have uh, the the, um, uh, the fundamentals of any topic. Uh, so let's say you have computer programming or something. Then the fundamentals is going to be like you know the basic usage of a text editor. Uh, it's going to be uh, I don't know using like if statements, for loops, and all of that stuff. All of the fundamentals, right? Um, and then as you go deeper and you go vertically downwards, then you get to more and more in depth stuff, right? 
Um, so, so if you go like straight down, you're going to get into more and more advanced things. Um, so, so you can sort of imagine this as being a two-dimensional space. And then depending on how you learn, you can take a different route through these nodes. So, so for instance, I, I'd like to call it the academic approach is kind of when you go for the top row first. Um, and then when, once you've learned the top row of all the things you need to learn, basically all the fundamentals, you then go to the next step and then learn everything on the second row. Uh, so then that's all of the, you know, the secondary fundamentals, I, I don't know what to call them, but you know, whatever is yeah. next, right, in the textbook. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of the, that's the academic approach. You spend a lot of time learning all the basics and then you learn after you're done with all of that, then you go to the next step. Um, to contrast that, there are, different, there are different ways of approaching this too. So that's kind of the academic approach is kind of the uh, breadth first type of approach. But then you can also do depth first, which is you dive deep down, like straight down the, the, this whole space of nodes into whatever you want to learn. Um, and you're, you're diving, targeting something really difficult. Um, so, so this is kind of the approach taken by people who go uh, like, oh, I would like to make an MMO. And then they just <laughs> try to dive to the MMO node um, without having learned every single fundamental. They just go for whatever takes them there, right? The, the problem with this approach is, of course, that you're kind of missing a lot of things when you do that, right? Um, because all of these nodes have upward dependencies. You need to learn some fundamentals in order to understand you know, the subsequent nodes in this space, right? Um, so, so that's usually why you have these, uh, sometimes these people who go on forums and try to make an MMO, and then everybody's like, well, would, do you actually know how to make games? Like, this is a very hard project to scope and create, and you know, it's a very big project. Anyway, so, so that's kind of the depth-first approach, where you just try to jump to, to the final advanced node without knowing the fundamentals, which kind of gets you nowhere, right? Because you need to learn things in order to keep going and making things productively. So, so both of these approaches, I feel like some of them have advantages and some of them have disadvantages, um, of both of them. So as for the academic approach, where you learn all of the fundamentals, the, um, the good thing with doing that is that uh, lateral movement, uh, in other words, moving you know, horizontally across this space of learning, is very easy. Uh, because you've learned everything in all of these things, right? Um, so, so if you've learned all the fundamentals and somebody tells you to, oh, you need to switch to, from working on this thing to this other thing, which is on the same skill level, then you can do that because you know all of these things. And, um, and that's a really good thing if you don't like, know where you're going, um, which seems to be incredibly common. I don't understand this. <laughs> but there seems to be a lot of people... Who, um, who don't know where they want to go in life. And if you learn breadth first, that's really good because then you can go for whatever is good, right? Or whatever uh, you end up wanting to go to. Um, so, so I think that's good for, for when you don't know where you're exactly where you're going in life, you know? But if you do know where you want to go, then you're spending a lot of time learning things that you don't need, uh, which can in some cases be good if you do have the time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're, if you're working on an indie game on the side or something, and you want to make a game, and that's your goal, then you know, learning the fundamentals of sorting algorithms <laughs> is useless. That's not, you know, why would you spend time on that? My, my approach to learning, which is probably common among people, I don't think this is like something new or whatever, but um, um, my approach to learning is kind of to make sure that you're going towards the goal that you want uh, and not doing like a naive depth-first approach. If you just jump to, I want to make an MMO immediately, uh, you're going to be missing a lot of fundamentals that you need. Uh, but if you do go there, uh, if you start moving in that direction and then pay attention to dependencies, then in that case, you can notice that, okay, as soon as I reach this node, then in order to move, move on, I need to learn the things that this one is connected to. I need to learn these specific fundamentals. And then you learn those, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so so it's, a, it's a bit of a different approach where you, you're kind of learning on a bare minimum type of, um, you know, on, 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 what's it called? On Like need to know? Need to know basis. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the approach that I usually like to take. Um, and then, then once you do that, doing lateral movements means that you don't have to learn a ton of things. Maybe there's, you can kind of imagine it like, a, um, like an upside down Christmas tree of all the nodes you've learned. Uh, so it's going to be like conical, right? Um, and then if you need to do lateral movements, then you only need to learn the things that run along the edge of that tree instead of like everything above it, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the way I like to approach those things. I love the, um, you had a graphic in, the, in your presentation that showed that sort of upside down Christmas tree. And it really, it does seem like a simple concept, but what I really loved about it was this idea that it just puts in your mind this idea that the deeper you want to go, the wider the base of your knowledge needs to be. And, yeah. uh, but not necessarily the, the wider your entire uh, uh, span of knowledge needs to be. Mm -hmm. And that's sort, sure, of, yeah. that's sort of comforting, and it also lets you sort of plan it out maybe a little better. I think the question I have is, how do you recognize what those dependencies are? As you move deeper down the, the path you want to go, there, you're going to be, you're obviously going to need to move out, uh, you know, uh, sideways uh, in, in other mm -hmm. areas. When, when do you know you have to do that? Uh, I think it's as soon as you notice that you don't understand something. Mm -hmm. Like you have to... You have so right to, away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like as soon as you don't understand a word, if you're reading a sentence about how to make an MMO, if there are some words in there that you don't understand, look it up immediately yeah. and go learn that thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of have to admit that to yourself. I think, um, I think there are a lot of people who don't like, want to do that. They think they know everything that they need to know. And kind of like ignore everybody who says that they don't know the things that they need to know. Um, but uh, I think um, as soon as you start doing things in practice, you start to realize that I have no idea what I'm doing, and I need to learn these things. Um, so, so I guess it's um, it's kind of hard for me to give advice to in that sense, I guess, because I've been sort of I've been trying to have this approach all the time. I guess that would be my approach, but but it is kind of hard. Like sometimes you don't really know what the dependencies are, uh, like until you start working on them. So this is not always something you can plan. Right. Um, oh, so, so one more thing that um, uh, I was going to mention, that was sort of a side topic, but um, when doing the depth first learning, if you're the thing that you're doing when you say that you want to make an MMO is that you're very goal oriented. Um, and the thing is, you're also going towards a goal that you want to do, right? You're not, if you're doing breadth first, maybe you're interested in like a few things, um, but there are a lot of nodes that you're learning and spending a lot of time on that you might not be very interested in. Um, and as soon as you're not interested in something, it tends to take longer to learn that thing. You don't have as much like motivation. Mm. Um, whereas if you're learning nodes that you're interested in, it tends to go, it's almost frictionless, right? It takes, you know, way less time and it's fun to do. And you're, you're almost done, you know, by just an hour instead of like five days. So, so part of what I like about the depth first approach, you know, the naive, I want to make an MMO one is that it actually aligns your learning with your interests. Mm. Um, and I think. That's what you need to do, but also care about the dependencies. Um, so, so this kind of alignment of you know going for your interests, interests, and um, learning things, checking dependencies. Um, what did I call it? I, I had a silly name for it. Um, I, I think it was like pathologically hedonistic goal oriented <laughs> learning. <laughs> yes, I think but, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so basically, um, when it comes to something that you want to do, um, uh, when it you know if it's a personal project or something, then just just go for what you think is interesting and then that's going to have less friction. But, but I think it's also, uh, and, and in some cases it's hard to do that. If you're, if you're at a workplace or if you're, um, if you're studying, uh, then it might be difficult to align the things you quote-unquote have to learn with your interests. 
so then I tend to want to kind of bend it into something that's interesting to me. Um, so, so there was a part of the, um, uh, I was at a game design school and we had an assignment where the goal was to, um, we were going to like analyze the, um, uh, the UI of a game and then, you know, talk about, you know, maybe the decisions they made in designing that UI and whatnot. Um, and I was not very interested in that. I felt like eh, I don't. That's not very interesting to me. Um, but then I was working on a uh, an indie game on the side. Uh, so I asked the teacher, like, "Hey, can I design a UI for my own game?" So then I kind of you know go through the design part process as well. Um, and then they were okay with that. So so in that case, I kind of made these nodes of learning that I have to do. I made them smaller because I, it's easier for me to learn them because it's something I'm motivated by doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it might seem like it's a bit like too self-interested, like trying to bend everything into what you want to do. Um, but we are very much driven by the things we want to do and achieve, right? Uh, so I think it's good to align those incentives and, you know, help yourself learn in that way. Yeah, I think that's very smart. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, did you get a chance to play HyperDot? I didn't. Oh, uh, okay. I, I really should have. I, I saw some of it. <laughs> oh, um, no, it's all good. But, uh, yeah, I should have. Um, my brother, he, uh, he actually built started that game very similar to how you like were proposing it here where um, mm-hmm. they uh, he was tasked with making a presentation on like the effects of anti-piracy on on games and stuff like that um, and he made it he decided to make a game out of it instead of you know like making a PowerPoint presentation or whatever yeah that's a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah I think it was specifically you're not allowed to do PowerPoint presentation, but anything else, and he's like, "Okay, <laughs> I'll take that bet." And I remember playing a version. It's usually the other way around. But. Yeah, <laughs> I remember playing an early version of that game when it was called Anti Piracy. Right, yeah, and thinking like, "What does this have to do with anything <laughs> on this topic?" Yep. I don't even. I mean, I think it was just an like. How do you do on that assignment? I, I, he, I mean, he graduated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm All not. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah. The important thing is he was motivated to finish something, and now he's like he's made a job yeah. out of it. So yeah, then yeah. that's perfect. Like if you can align those things, then that's that you're kind of setting yourself up for success. Like as long as you can monetize it, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> like that's like the the question we're all asking ourselves in the creative industry. Like, oh, how do I monetize my hobbies? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and like it really just is effectively using your time. I think like you're that you're describing this sort of self interested process. You need to have the confidence in yourself to say that like. I'm going to do it my own way. Yeah. But also you need the humility to say like, oh, I don't know everything. Yeah. And I think that those can be, those can fight each other a little bit sometimes, right? Yeah. It's kind of, you kind of just have to accept your faults mm-hmm. uh, and the things you're missing. Um, so, so one, one problem with, um, um, so, you know, if, if you contrast the naive depth-based approach where you just jump to the MMO immediately, if somebody else is asking them a question like, oh, so... You, it looks like you want to make an MMO and then they ask something about, oh, but how do I transform a thing from world space to local space and this thing? And then they, they have no idea. Then that kind of shows that they don't know anything about this, right? right. And this can also kind of happen uh, in case you do the, the type of learning that I would advocate, you know, when you do the dependency-based one, um, where th- there was one time I was streaming and somebody was, we were talking about code for some reason. <laughs> we were talking about like code structure and stuff and somebody was like, hey, um, have you looked at uh, doing dependency injection? Um, and I was like, uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, dependency injection is something that's very, very fundamental in a way. Like, if you're if you've been studying coding like formally, then you definitely know what dependency injection is, right? Um, 
But for me, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I've never been interested in even understanding it. Still to this day, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, you, um, you brought that up at, at the... Uh, at the I brought uh, it up in the keynote. Yeah. yeah, you brought it up at the keynote, and I still don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look it up. Well, I didn't explain it in the keynote either. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you almost... It sounds like you have a desire to, to, in fact, avoid learning what it means. Because it's a perfect example. Oh, but I do. I, I mean, I, I definitely do avoid learning things I don't have to learn mm -hmm. uh, because it, then I'd be wasting time. Um, right. It might be like a very stressful outlook on life in a way where it's like you have to min-max your entire life. Uh, <laughs> um, but I do think that um, when, it, when it comes to learning specific things within a specific uh, you know, area, then I do think that it's, it's very good to make sure that you don't learn the things that you don't know um, it, unless it's kind of close to the thing that's you know, useful to you. Um, but, and that's only if you want to like, make your learning very efficient, right? Um, but, but, but then again, like, of course you can go on tangents and learn things that you find interesting because you want to, but, but yeah, it depends on what your goal is, right? So if your goal is to release a game, then you, it's really good to have a really goal oriented approach and, and, you know, laser focus on the things that you do need, uh, and try to ignore the things you don't need as much as possible. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing is like, when people ask you things that you can't answer, um, it's kind of like. Like, again, I, I look dumb, right? If somebody asks me something that I don't know when they expect me to know that thing, you know, ex ex exactly with the um, dependency injection where um, people would expect me to know that given that I've been in the games industry and coding for like, I don't know, I've been professionally doing it for seven years and I've been coding for since forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so people expect me to have done some sort of breadth first approach, like mm -hmm. the academic approach where you learn every single thing until you move on. But I haven't. Um, I have huge gaps in my knowledge, um, but people seem to think that I know everything. <laughs> when they see, well, when they see that I've created Shaderforge, for instance, they're like, "Oh, so you must know everything about shaders?" And I'm like, "No, I have no idea. There are many things I am completely oblivious about." Um, and and it's kind of this assumption that people come into it with. Um, but but I guess it's like I guess it's good if if you want to like appear to be impressive without actually having done that much. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. For me, it was just like I, I learned how to make Shader Forge, not how to make every single shader and learn about every single GPU. Mm -hmm. And that that was born out of a specific need you had, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about because that sort of is like the 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 inciting incident for moments like this where you need to learn these things but not be a complete expert in it. Um, yeah. Like, tell us about the beginning of Shader Forge. Like, what did you need it for? So I guess it was two parts. Uh, one is more sounds better and the other one is more selfish <laughs> so, um, so, so, so one of them was that uh, I was teaching at a uh, game design school in Stockholm, uh, it's called Fuchsia Games in case anybody cares um, so um, in there I had a course in C Sharp scripting and Unity mm -hmm. uh, and the students had recently switched from the Unreal Engine and then to Unity um, so when, that, when they did that switch, they, at the time Unity did not have a shader editor so, uh, while Unreal did so a lot of the artists and a lot of the people who worked on, you know, the Unreal games, they just suddenly lost a tool that was like super essential in case you want to make like special effects or, you know, fancy shaders for your things in the game. Um, so, so all of that got lost. And I felt the same way because I also made the switch from Unreal to Unity around that time. Um, so I was like, all right, I really enjoyed making, you know, all of these effects in Unreal. Uh, but there's not really any way for me to do this in Unity without learning how to do shader coding. Um, so I was thinking, you know, maybe I can start working on this. Maybe there's there's a way for me to make a tool that can help all of these students, you know, learn the things that they want to learn, and you know, have a tool that accelerates their learning. So, so yeah, th that's kind of the the nice 
part of it. The the other selfish part of it is just that I want to make shaders for myself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care that much about them. I just want to make you know shaders quickly for my project. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then also as soon as I started realizing that this is something I can sell, then then that's you know a good way to start your studio in case it you know brings in a lot of money. Um, because it's a viable product because a lot of people want it. And then, you know, I sold it on the Unity Asset Store. Um, and, and you know, the, the as soon as I started realizing that there was this huge need, I was more and more driven to do it because I, I felt like, okay, this is actually something that can, you know, help me start an indie studio and finally work on the games that I want to work on, right? Um, yeah, so that was kind of the um, my own personal motivation. Um, but then in terms of, like, um, doing a laser focus on the things that I have to learn, like, I had never coded a shader before, uh, before Shader Forge. I'd never done that. I've just been using the Unreal Editor, which is just a node-based visual interface. Um, so, so I just went to, all right, basically went to Google immediately. Like, how do I make a shader in Unity? And I started writing them, you know, and I spent like, about, I think it was around a week where I did nothing but learn how to make shaders. Um, and then as soon as I kind of had a good grasp of how they worked, um, then I started looking at how Unity wrote their shaders. Um, to kind of get a sense of, you know, what's the goal? What's the target? Of what should this tool output? Um, and then sort of learning backwards from there, right? Um, rather than just learning everything there is to know about shaders, I, I learned what I had to learn in order to produce the types of shaders that it should produce, right? Um, so yeah, I learned, uh, you know, the things that I had to learn in order to make the types of shaders that I wanted the editor to make. Um, and then everything related to making tools in Unity and using the, their interfaces and all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the the path I took there, and then I then everything else from there was kind of like driven by need. Um, I had a lot of studios who were using Shader Forge, and I was using Shader Forge, and and then I was just like collecting feedback to figure out what to do next. And then eventually, uh, you you've now released Shader Forge as an open source project. You've given it away, yeah, and yep. um, that's born out of a different need, right? Um, it was, yeah. That was um, that was primarily because I um, I didn't have that much time to work on it anymore. Uh, because pretty much for every um, for every update of Unity, something broke. <laughs> <laughs> it was like either either they changed something with their graphics that I had to update just to keep up to their uh, with their graphics update, um, or they updated something in terms of the Unity editor, and something broke when I pressed play, and you know all of those things. Um, so, so there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of things I had to do every time Unity released an update, and mm-hmm. you know, once I got more and more more and more busy working on budget cuts, then um, it, I just didn't have the time. It was just I was just doing it in my spare time, right? Um, so, yeah, it was kind of like eating up my spare time. And I, when I was like, when I was not working on Shaderforge, I had this like nagging feeling in my head, like, oh, you should be working on Shaderforge, <laughs> you should be right. working on Shaderforge, and I'm like, ah, it, was, it just became too much after a while. Right. Uh, and then kind of the um, the combination of not having time to work on it um, and still selling it in the store, I felt like there, there was something that just felt really bad. Because um, like, I feel like I shouldn't be selling an asset that I'm not supporting. Um, it was still selling pretty well, but I feel like it's kind of a... Um, like the, the game development community is pretty small, and being an asshole in this community is not a good idea. Like, even even from like a selfish perspective, it's not a good idea. Pro tip. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're if you're nice to people, then people will like you. It's it's very simple. Right. Uh, right. So if you if if I were to just keep selling it or something, then I would be an asshole, and I would don't want to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So I just felt like okay, I'm not working on this anymore. I have to 
just sell it or just let it go, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and then you know making it open source was kind of the um, the best way to do that, I think. Because then if people do want to make updates and they want to keep using it, then they can update it and you know adapt it to their own projects and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I feel like that was the the best way to go. It's really interesting because I was going to ask you about like what is that moment where you say like, well, I want to make games, I don't want to make tools, or I don't want to make this tool anymore. Mm-hmm. And what what did it feel like giving that up in order to, to chase something else? But the way you described it, it seems like it was a very obvious choice. Um, it was pretty, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it was kind of the um, it was born out of the necessity because I just didn't have the time, and it was just nagging on me all the time. So, but yeah, the, the um. That that was a pretty big problem. Like during the um, during the process of making Shader Forge, there was there was a time where there was a lot of conversations with Unity because um, they they saw Shader Forge and they saw the usefulness of it, right? Um, and um, so so we were in talk. I was talking with Unity, and then, then um, you know they wanted to buy Shader Forge, and they also wanted to hire me to work on you know an internal shader editor, um, which is like super cool, and it was a great deal, and everything was like super nice. Um, it's just that the our incentives were were just not aligned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I ultimately I want to make games, not tools, and the, the so I kind of had that conflict where I got this really nice job opportunity, and also like I would also get money out of it, I guess. Um, <laughs> but then it would just not it was wasn't the thing that I wanted to do in life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because Shady Forge was more like born out of just being a tool that I wanted to make for you know myself and then also by extension others in the end. Um, and then if I were to work on that officially at Unity, that would be like, it would be interesting for a while, but then I, w- I would lose interest interest because I, I just want to make my games and uh, have a tool to do it. And, and now at the time that I released the, um, uh, when I released Shaderforge to be open source, I, uh, th- there was uh, some competitors pop- popping up. So there was um, um, Amplify Shader Editor an amplifier kind of like established asset creators. So, uh, so that was really good that they, you know, c- came out with a, a big product with a support team that's larger than one person. <laughs> and, you know, all of that is very good for the, the community as a whole, right? Um, and then Unity also started working on their own editor, mm. uh, which is also, I think, I think it might be in beta still. I'm not sure, but it, it's out there at least. Um, so, so then it's like, it, it's for me, it's just great that people can make shaders now. There are a lot of tools out there. Uh, and I don't have to update Shaderforge anymore. There are other people <laughs> who update Shader editors now, and I can, you know, keep on with doing the things that I want to do. Right? Mm-hmm. That's great. So, um, and that I mean, budget cuts is what is what you uh, moved on to. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know not so much the story of its creation, but what didn't you know when you started that you had to learn, and maybe had to learn quickly. Sticking with the topic a little bit. Oh, what I didn't know. That would probably be very specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I'd never written a save system before. Ah, uh, yeah. So I did that for the first time. Um, and what else? I guess there's all of the design lessons from VR. Because uh, there's, uh, like when we started working on budget cuts, there was very little information out there, right? Sure. There, there was almost like nothing. Um, so, so we were kind of, you know, the first out here. And we were like, okay, how, how does game design work in VR? Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just a very new field, really. Um, so, so a lot of it just came down to testing things, like testing it in practice, writing some code, and throwing some users into headsets, and you know, <laughs> seeing what they think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, so, so I think a lot of game design is actually very similar when it comes to VR and uh, non-VR. Uh, I, I think the biggest difference is when it comes to interactions and UI. 
um, the the how you interact with the world is very different in VR. Um, so so every like UI convention that we've gone for, we kind of have to like rethink everything. So so yeah, that that was a very interesting uh, thing to do, and then, then just dealing with all of the physicalities of a game. Uh, where it's like in budget because you're kind of like using your entire body. You're standing up when you're doing things, right? Um, and then, you know, you run into issues of like, you know, what, what if somebody just walks straight ahead into a wall? Is that something we want to happen? Or like, how do we prevent that from happening? Um, and, you know, in our game, we have a lot of things that you throw using uh, your hands and everything. And just getting the throwing mechanics right and, you know, make that feel good is, was just something that I've never done before. <laughs> That's generally you know, not something you have to do. Like, you usually have a button to throw a knife, and then you throw the knife. And then right. you tweak the animation to look good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't do that in VR if the user is throwing it themselves. Um, right. So, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, physical things we had to think about there. But what was that iterative process? Did you have a lot of, like, um, did you sort of halt production for playtesting and gather data? Or was it kind of just a big... I'm just imagining the way I work is I want to have this, like... A, you know, test a theory, try it out myself, put it in the field, get the data, revise. But it's more like a big pile of spaghetti instead of that. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm curious uh, how you uh, approached the process of, of learning those uh, and developing those design conventions. Um, I mean, it, it was mostly just testing internally. Yeah. Uh, we didn't do that many like planned tests. That was mm-hmm. more like later in the process of budget cuts. But at the beginning, we were primarily a team of perfectionists, and we just kept polishing things. And you know, it felt unnecessary to invite other people because we had like a long list in our heads of things that we had to fix before inviting people. Right. Uh, so, so most of it was just testing amongst ourselves because yeah, we were never happy with anything. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, that was kind of so we didn't have like a like a proper process that worked well. So I'm afraid I don't have any like useful <laughs> advice. <laughs> I think that's a good perspective because uh, we on the show and we in the in, in our local community we have the we're like we're all adherents to the church of playtesting. Yeah, and uh, we take it very seriously. But at the same time, I will sometimes think like, no, 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 I I can figure this out on my own sometimes, and in in, in, in interest of efficiency anyway. And so I think it just shows that like you can't really be dogmatic about any approach you take because clearly the results sort of speak for themselves <laughs> in a sense. Like, yeah. you know, uh, I yeah. think Budget Cuts does well with users yeah. um, without, have, without you having to have needed a, a big formal process. So I think a lot of developers who yeah. get started and then they hear that, they oh, you got to test to iterate, you have to test, you have to test. And I think that sort of can scare people, especially because a lot of the effort that it takes. Um, but I mean, going back to sort of your your thesis of, not doing what you don't have to do. Um, yeah. Sometimes you, I guess, just uh, identifying those things is the challenge, right? Yeah, I think um, the the the. I guess the number one thing you have to test is all of the uh, design decisions that you're guessing. Um, where um, we had a lot of issues when it came to um, switching weapons or mm-hmm. tools, as we call them in our game. Um, so, so there are a lot of like standard conventions when it comes to this, right? So for console games, you kind of have the uh, the weapon wheel. So you push the analog stick in a direction, and then you select between the different things, right? And it's kind of this radial menu. Um, so that's a very like established thing for console games on how to switch weapons. Um, on like on PC, or you using the keyboard, or you have the number keys or the scroll wheel. Um, mm-hmm. So everybody knows how to do that in those games, but in VR, like. What what do we do? <laughs> we can't do the analog stick thing. We don't have a keyboard and a mouse, and there's no scroll wheel. Um, so then the um, the problem was like, okay, so we started out like trying to port these things, we, and and I felt like, okay, maybe we can do the radial menu, but instead of instead of just being a UI in front of you, it's attached to the hand where you try to do the use the menu. 
um, because the uh, the Vive uh, controller had a touchpad. So I was thinking this touchpad might be useful to use as some sort of radial selection thing. So if if you're like spinning your thumb on the touchpad and it's on the left side, then you know you can see a menu there where you can pick the left weapon or whatever. Um, and I felt like that was a pretty good design. Uh, I felt like that was probably you know that that's probably good and people understand the radial menu and whatnot. Um, but in VR, like nobody understood that one, mm. and and the um, and and the problem was that even after explaining how it worked, we had a lot of problems with it too. Mm-hmm. So so when it comes, you kind of have to make sure that you test the every, every like convention that you you know pulled from old types of games, old games, I guess like non VR <laughs> games. You have to like sort of make sure that they are translatable because not all of them are. Um, and you you do have to make a lot of guesses. I guess maybe not as much nowadays because now there are VR games out there. Right. Um, so so you know, and then you have all the physical problems where you know you you're holding this um, you're holding this Vive wand and you have this touchpad on it, right? Um, and you know our weapon selection menu was you know put swipe your thumb with the touchpad in whatever direction you want to equip that you know tool or weapon in. Problem was that when people were didn't want to select a weapon, they kept doing it by mistake because mm. some people play with their thumb on the touchpad at all times. So if you if you have your thumb on the touchpad and you throw a throwing knife, that means that you're like fiddling around with a thumb as well. <laughs> so then they would like switch tool while throwing a weapon, and you know all of these things kind of you know it becomes very clear once you play test. So I think it's important for like any type of unique thing that you're trying to do. Um, but but it, it very much depends on the feature itself. Like if you're if you're working on a game that's very standard, I think you can go very far without playtesting. Uh, but in terms of VR, it's just a very unique and weird space to work in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so there was a there were a lot of issues when it came to like tool selection. But um, I, I guess in, in terms of um, practicality, if people want like VR tips and how to make VR interfaces. <laughs> um, Using the real world is almost always much, much better as a reference than using other games or other non-VR games. Um, so, um, so what that means in practice is that the systems that you implement and all of the things you interact with do physical interactions. Try to think of how we do this in real life. Um, like if you want to have a, um, uh, if you want to like turn down the volume or something uh, in, in a menu, then make that a volume slider or make that a knob that you would see on a radio or something. You know, something that the user recognizes from re- real life. Put that into VR because you know VR feels so much more physical. Um, so, so you know, just try to translate everything into something more physical, and then people will un- will understand it. Um, so, so kind of our solution when it came to the weapon selection um, was for the user to hold down a button, and this then kind of um, pops up physical items in front of their hand. Uh, so then they can see the different uh, tools that they can equip. And the way to equip them is to push your hand into them. It was kind of like this socket type of thing where you socketed your tools into your hand. Um, and that required almost no explanation. Like as soon as people tried it, they just intuitively did it and then it worked, right? Instead of trying to, you know, use the abstractions from like console games or PC games. Uh, so I guess that would be the big takeaway when it comes to VR design. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. This, you don't need to uh, abstract as many things in VR because like you have the ability to be uh, more precise with your movements and such. So that makes a lot yeah. of sense. I think that's smart to go approach yeah. VR design that way. Mm-hmm. Has there any of the learnings that you've gotten from doing this stuff in VR? Does any of it sort of travel back to non-VR games? Like um, That might be a strange thing to think about, but I think the more we learn about different types of interaction, the richer we can make all types of interaction. You know? Yeah, I think that's um, 
that's an interesting question. I, I don't know if I can think of anything explicitly now. Sure. Um, I mean, apart from just like um, making sure that you don't get too stuck in your uh, the ways that you're used to working, mm-hmm. I think just just the fact that it pushed you out of your you know habitual thoughts, I think that there was value in that as well. Um, and it kind of makes you you kind of makes you have to do a double take as soon as you design something because you might be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's worth keeping in mind. Um, so I think that's something that's kind of carried over. Um, but yeah, this, like the games that I'm working on now on my own, they're not very, I don't think there's many things I can take away from VR into those. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martha, I know you've done experiments with VR where like the UX of it was the whole problem, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> um, me and my brother were working on a, a game where you, you're, we use like a dance pad from DDR. And oh, nice. <laughs> I play DDR like once a week, so I'm very much. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's like you, you would use the different directions to move your hoverboard that you're on. Um, and the biggest problem we had was like making it so that people knew what they were stepping on. So we ended up like putting, because um, you can't see the actual board or your feet unless you have the the Vive trackers, which I think when we started working on it, we didn't have any. So, um, so yeah, we had to figure out like, how do we tell the person what, what thing they're stepping on and then how do they feel it? So we put like, we taped pipe cleaners to the um, dance pad <laughs> so people could mm-hmm. like feel with their feet, like if they're stepping over a button or not. Best to play so. without shoes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really difficult, like trying to orient yourself in, in VR. Um, there's a, um, yeah, we had like similar issues in our case, but it, it's a bit easier because we didn't like require precision at specific locations on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so for us, it was mostly like a distance from the origin of your tracked space. That was kind of the thing we had to communicate, I guess. Um, but that's really cool with the DDR pad. That's interesting. Um, did you, um, so how did you, uh, did you do anything to solve or like uh, work with like mitigating motion sickness in that one too? Or like, how did you handle locomotion? Yeah. So the whole, like part of the, the point of uh, our experimenting with it was trying to see like, will like having physical buttons to push with your feet help with like movement feelings? Um, and we found that if you weren't moving, like if you, like the physical step of it, actually helped if you weren't moving next to something that also moved or was like too close to you. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I think people seem to say that seem to feel in play tests that it helped to like step forward and then move. So then you also have like yeah. a, you had to adjust the like acceleration or deceleration. Yeah. It, it had more of an effect than you expected. Right? Yes. Yeah. So we messed with that a lot. It was a lot of like, Bump it up to 0.5. <laughs> nope, that's too much. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah, it's really hard to deal with motion sickness. It's one of those things that it's really hard to like communicate to players who've never played VR before, like why this is a problem. Yeah, because um, yeah. there are so many people who seem to be like naively be like, "Oh, I want to play Call of Duty in <laughs> VR," and it's like, "Okay, well, as soon as you hold the W on your keyboard, you're gonna throw up." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of how, how it works, and. And uh, so, so this, I think this is a very difficult problem to work around. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we kind of just decided not to have any artificial locomotion in budget cuts, at least, because it, it's such a big problem. And people, I don't know, like early on, I think it's important to make sure that people don't like associate we, VR with, you know, feeling sick, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. But um, 
but yeah, it's I think it's a really difficult problem. But but yeah, it sounds like the um your experience when when the uh, if people are close to geometry when they're moving, um, that's kind of when they can see the movement, right? Mm. But as long as they can't see the movement, it tends to be fine. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what we uh, had in our experience too. Uh, but it is basically the um, you basically want to avoid the vestibular mismatch, right? In terms of the perceived motion and the felt motion in your inner ears. Um, so so as soon as that, as long as that's one to one, we're good to go, right? But if it's not one to one, it tends to not work out very well. <laughs> uh, so you know, it, it, I think it's just fascinating. It, it's kind of like. Um, uh, what, what's it called? It's kind of like the reverse car sickness, right? Yeah. Because if you're in a car and you're reading something, you don't see the movement, but you can feel it. Oh, And yeah. then you get sick. Mm-hmm. Of that. Right. Um, whereas in VR, you can see the movement, but you don't feel it. Um, and both of these cases tend to cause sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's basically just everything you have to do is try to align those two as much as possible or make the movement so abstract that you don't perceive it as motion. Um, that's kind of like the way... Um, some people tend to do the snap turning or do this snap where you like teleport instantly to the locations. And like, as long as that's, you know, big enough of a discrepancy, it doesn't feel like smooth or some sort of continuous motion, then that's just a teleportation. Um, but it's like the closer you get to doing something that like looks like, you know, continuous movement, you, you get sick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can do linear motion because there's no forces involved there. So if you, if you're like linearly moving forward, then that's fine. Uh, but as soon as you have some form of acceleration, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. So yeah. In budget cuts, you chose to do the the sort of teleportation thing, um, so people didn't get sick. But I think it also worked for your design of the game because, like, you're supposed to be sneaky and stuff. Yeah. So it made it feel cur- like feel more authentic, I guess. Yeah, because I mean that that's it's always frustrating when something feel like it was kind of shoehorned in. Um, and I think a lot of players feel like that's kind of what happens if you just have these straight up teleportation where, mm-hmm. you know, you have a laser pointer type of locomotion where you point to an area, press a button and then snap, you're there. Right. Um, I think that's very, it feels very tacked on and it's not like contextualized within the game universe either. It's just like, well, why do I move like this? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, so yeah, we wanted to contextualize that as much as possible in universe. So you know, you actually have a translocator, a gun that you can use to teleport to different locations. And, you know, it was all tied into the game. And then, you know, on top of that, all of the levels are also designed with that in mind. So, you know, if you if you didn't have this device, you wouldn't be able to do some things that you can do. Like, you know, open a vent and then fire through the vent and then teleport to the other side. That's something that you wouldn't be able to do unless you, I don't know, crawl through the vent. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, or reach heights that you couldn't reach otherwise. But, um, yeah, so that's kind of the way we try to contextualize and solve that but but then again it, it kind of it kind of becomes a different design as well it's very hard to you know take standard stealth game situations and just port them to teleportation um because a lot of stealth games it's kind of about you know moving behind the guard while they're walking or like moving across the space while nobody's looking but if you have teleportation you just teleport across the entire space and right. nobody can see yeah right? um so so it does require a very different type of design um, so that was very challenging, but yeah, it kind of worked out. You know, you're always going to have those players, and you'll you'll see them comment on Reddit like, like just gi- just give me a free motion option. I know it's not for everybody, oh, but, God, I, but yeah. I can handle it. And I think yeah. a game like Budget Cuts doesn't seem to lend itself to that argument. No, because of how its its design is so like a piece with its controls. Um, but d- did you face enough, those people? We we did absolutely. I mean, as <laughs> as soon as you're on Reddit, you're gonna get those people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but I mean, for us, it was mostly um, we did get those people, but we felt like we had a good argument as for why that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
we just tell them that, you know, no, we designed the game for teleportation. If you have um, any kind of continuous locomotion, that's not going to work well with the design of the game. And it's just not going to be fun, right? Um, and, um, but yeah, the, it, it was a very, we had uh, some arguments about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's a better it's argument difficult. to have that it's a design issue. It's it not, because you don't want to be, you don't want to accuse someone of not being able to handle it. You know, right. yeah, sure, but but I mean, the the problem is that there's a lot of backseat designers out there, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and who haven't like haven't looked at all of the dependencies. <laughs> <laughs> then, then we're sitting here having to explain everything. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, but but we frequently, you know, internally we talk a lot about this in terms of VR game design, and um, we had this view of budget cuts that if budget cuts didn't have VR, it would be a bad game. Um, it would be a very mediocre experience on PC or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's a pretty good guideline, not like a definite guideline, but I think that's a good guideline for if your VR game actually needs VR. Um, Because if you remove the VR component, if your game is just as good, then why are you using VR? Then you're just like removing like 99% of your customer base, (laughs) right? Because like almost nobody has VR, right? Um, So I feel like, Games have to justify using VR. I feel like um, so. So for us, if if our game kind of removes its entire heart, if you remove VR, I think that's a good sign. Um, so yeah, it, as soon as you like advocate having like continuous locomotions or, or whatever, that kind of goes away from the whole concept of VR, um, and then that in turn removes the whole point of the game. Um, so so that's kind of why we tried to, you know, take all the things that's nice with like room scale VR. And just push it to the limits. Where um, you, we have sections in the game where you have to duck, right? Because it's a low ceiling space. Um, so you just have to physically duck in the real world. There's no duck button. You have to actually duck yourself or crouch. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> wait, is duck the British version and crouch is the American? I don't know. We use uh, both. Anyway, yeah, we yeah. use both. You yeah. use both. What's the difference in your case? There is there is no right. difference. You can say duck or crouch. I guess it's always been interchangeable. Yeah. I guess crouch is more. Has more precision. It doesn't like include yeah, an animal. Duck is like someone's throwing something at you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Crouch is more like on your own time. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you don't you don't have something thrown at you and then you crouch, so that feels weird. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because you're gonna uh, get hit. Yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so that was kind of what, one of the ways we wanted to push the limits of VR and like really exploit the way VR works and you know make that interesting. Which is, you know, we tried, um, we tried implementing guns uh, in mm. budget cuts where we wanted to have, you know, the classic stealth weapons like a tranquilizer gun or whatever. Um, but um, it turns out that that was just not fun. Um, whereas using a throwing knife where, you know, you, you do the entire physical movement with your arm, you actually throw a thing through space and you hit an enemy and then you're like, fuck yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> really good. Um, but if you compare that to holding a thing and then you squeeze a button and then a thing flies away, that's not even close to the same experience. Yeah. Um, so we ended up just scrapping all guns because they were just not even close to as fun as using throwing knives. Um, which is one of those things that's just very unexpected uh, if you don't like try these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's very VR specific, I suppose. But yeah, there's so much tension when you you lining up that knife throw because you only got mm-hmm. three knives right now, <laughs> and it's it's uh, and that's very much different than only having three bullets right now. Mm-hmm. Like I I, yeah. I totally see that. Yeah, with the bullets you have like a guaranteed hit, but with with knives it's kind of depends on you doing a skillful thing rather than just aiming. Right. Right. Um, 
which is very different. But the best thing is when you throw all of your knives and then you miss all of them and then you have to go there to pick them up again. I think that's the best. <laughs> then people really feel that tension, right? Where they're like, oh shit, I got to go there now and there's yeah. an enemy there who still lives. And, yeah. and if you're able to get all the knives back, then even though you failed in all your throws, you feel really skillful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, I think it's a nice, a nice thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're on your stream right now, uh, where you do you are, game yeah. dev, um, yes. and you're working on a new game now. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Oh, it's a very weird game. Um, I don't know how, how well it communicates over audio. Um, <laughs> I can try, I guess. Um, the game is called Flowstorm. Uh, it's a 2D platformer slash racing game. Um, okay. I usually think of it as like a mix of uh, Lunar Lander, Super Meat Boy, and Trekmania. Um, it's very strange. <laughs> but basically you control a rocket uh, and you can use this. Um, you use this to traverse the world. Uh, the world is uh, made out of a lot of like smooth curves. Um, so the goal is to uh, make your way through this world and you know get to the finish line as quickly as possible, just like many other racing games. Uh, so the platforming element comes from the fact that it's it's very difficult and you can you can crash and die. Um, so as soon as you touch the walls, uh, you die immediately, uh, so, and you have to restart. Uh, the the, um, the one safe part of your rocket ship is the underside. So that's similar to lunar lander, lunar lander, right? Um, so so the goal of the game is generally to fly around the level, try to align your rocket so that you slide along these smooth curves. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot about like managing momentum and your speed in the air and how you approach every single situation. So it's a very um, it's a very skill based two D racing game. Nice. <laughs> it's uh, it's very hard to explain, but that, that's basically it. So, so yeah, I've been uh, I've been live developing this on stream. Um, so yeah, basically from from the start, just coding it and talking about the things that I'm doing, why I'm doing them. Um, and so far, we've been doing. Uh, we have a level editor up and running. We have uh, online multiplayer up and running as well. So, so we do some play testing with people on stream. Oh, uh, I actually did oh, that that's a few awesome. hours ago. Wow. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right before this. So, um, yeah, it's it's just super fun to to be able to play with the community. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoy this. Uh, and then just the the people who come in every now and then. It's super nice to just chat with people who are new to game development and have questions or um, or want to play the game and and all of that stuff. So yeah, I think it's great. And then, of course, uh, sometimes you have the the occasional transphobic asshole, but that's you know <laughs> that's that's the internet, I guess. <laughs> well, um, it's I think it's a testament to your like determination that you put up with that, and and I've seen you've posted on YouTube some clips of of, of uh, when you have to deal with the uh, the <laughs> unfriendly. Have to watch that, <laughs> and, but I I think it's it's inspiring to people who have difficulty engaging with 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 um, the sort of less nice out there. Um, So I think you're providing, uh, regardless of whatever those interactions end up resulting in, the fact that you're willing to engage with them and and it's not deterring you, I think is really inspiring to people. I I, I hope you know that. Thank you. Yeah, Some people have told me that and it's really nice that that's the um, takeaway from many people. Um, I I don't know, like for me personally, it's kind of like a... um, I guess I have a lot of confidence in the fact that I know that they are just wrong with many of these things. Sure. Um, so, so then, you know, I just factually wrong with things that they're saying. <laughs> so then I, I guess it's like, for me, that makes it easier um, and to deal with all of this hate. But then also ha- I have some sort of like morbid curiosity with like trying to figure out how these people work. Because um, I, I very rarely like, in, like engage with people who disagree with me. Um, and I think there's some value to doing that in like 
like just to understand like other humans. Uh, like even though you might see them as like evil or malicious or whatever, um, like generally they're not like driven by being evil or being malicious. They probably just like either they just do something for because they think it's fun and they don't think it harms anyone else, um, or they just find it you know they just wanted to do it because their community encouraged doing that type of stuff. Um, and and to me, I feel like like a I am interested in getting to know the psychology behind these people because it's <laughs> so weird to me. Um, and and B, if if I want to pragmatically try to make the world a better place and try to move these people like maybe just slightly in the right direction, um, just banning them will make no change at all. Um, so I tend to want to try to engage with these people to see if I can you know nudge them in the right direction. And if I do that in a, I, you have to be responsible in doing this. Um, so I think if I do that in a very level-headed way, I think that helps a lot. Um, so. So, you know, we, we've had a few people who just jump into stream and they, you know, they do the classic like, oh, are you a boy or a girl? Or they say stuff like that and, and or say something worse or whatever. It's um, I tend to just be very calm and just be upfront about it and be like, oh, yeah, I'm a transgender woman and that's it. And then I kind of leave it at that. And then they're like, and, and some people are like, oh, are you gay or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty gay. Yeah, I'm well, <laughs> mostly attracted to women. But, um, but yeah, I kind of like both. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'm a bit more bisexual, but you know, if I have that type of answer, um, they they don't get the satisfaction of seeing somebody being upset. Sure. Um, and I think for the other people watching, seeing that I can be calm in these situations, I think that's I think that's inspiring. Um, and uh, it seems to play out in the community that we built here as well. Um, it's it's a very small community, but but um, there there are a lot of people you know under the LGBT umbrella. Um, in our community, I, would, I don't know if it's it might be even more than half half of everyone. Um, so, so it seems to attract the type of audience who um, are genuinely interested in it, which is which is like it was not really my plan <laughs> from the beginning, but whatever. Here we are, and it's a nice community, so I don't mind, right? Um, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the approach I take. But but then it's it's very hard to like balance these things. Um, I've talked about it on a stream many times where. Um, there's there's always the issue of you know platforming hateful people um and i do think that there's always some responsibility in that um so like i don't know i'm just so very tired of like some people on the internet who just platform very harmful people and then seem to not care about it right um, right so so i think if you um i don't know if you platform like i don't know richard spencer like that's probably a bad idea right um, and I think if you are going to do that, you need to prepare, you need to be very calm. You need to be the one who is like pretty much directs the conversation when you talk to these, uh, problematic people. Right. Um, so, so I think whenever you, whenever you want to engage with people who are, have like really horrible views, then you need to be able to criticize them responsibly. Mm-hmm. Um, because if they end up looking like the intelligence part, then the viewers are going to take that away from the whole conversation, right? Um, so, so I think that there are limits to how you should handle these situations. But, but when it comes to my situations, it's mostly just like, I don't know, I'm guessing they're mostly like my age or younger and they're just doing it for trolling or whatever. It's not like you know people who have like read about arguments about how transgender people totally are not a thing or whatever. So, mm-hmm. so it's not like I'm had, having intellectual debates or anything. It's mostly <laughs> like, Dealing with assholes, but um, um, but yeah, I don't know. There's a, 
I think there's a larger conversation to have about platforming, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna not talk about that. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, I, I think it's interesting at least. Yeah, um, because I do think there's a difficult balance there where, um, like, if you do want to pragmatically move people to quote unquote your side on any issue, um, I think it's really hard to just be hostile immediately. Uh, I think we have to try to be able to pull people somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I want to convince someone who's like totally anti, let's say, transgender rights or whatever, if I just, you know, go to the deep end immediately, they're not going to be with me. They're just going to dig deeper into their opinions, right? Um, but if I start talking about, you know, things that are closer to them and then kind of tug them in the direction of understanding these things, then it, then it kind of works pr- pragmatically, right? Um, even if it's just a little bit, it's, it's still in the right direction. And I think that's better than just to, I don't know, increase polarization, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the truth of it is, is like, like you're describing that that takes work and it's a burden on you. And we all benefit from you taking that on. I don't see it as work, so I'm not going to take credit for that. Okay. Well, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. That's very nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> like, to me, I'm just doing it for the most part because it's fun. Um, I don't know why, but again, I have this morbid curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, well, you might be yeah, perfectly uh, suited for the task then. <laughs> yeah. I guess like as long as the outcome is good, then maybe my intentions doesn't matter too much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. All right. So, um, Flowstorm is in development. Um, mm-hmm. when, do you have an idea for when it's coming out? And I'm asking because I already know the answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> when it's done? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, uh, I have no idea. The thing is, uh, Flowstorm, I'm kind of working on it on my, in my spare time now. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a neat corporation project. So, uh, so I'm, I'm just finding time and, you know, here and there to work on it. Um, so, I mean, just like today, I worked on it like before the stream. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know when it's going to be out, but we had a pretty good momentum throughout the development so far. Um, and, um, yeah, and I'm trying to like work on the fundamental features before going on to polishing things, which is very difficult. And it's the first time <laughs> I'm doing this. Uh, but I'm very, I'm very grateful that, I, a lot of people on the stream are actually trying to, they, um, they're kind of the polish police and they make sure <laughs> that I don't like get stuck polishing things because I really shouldn't be doing that at this early stage. Oh, um, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, yeah. So that's very good. Yeah. I really, really enjoy this community. It's super nice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool. It's like mutually beneficial too. That, oh that yeah, absolutely. they help you. You help them. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, um, given that there are a lot of people who are new to new to game development, they learn a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I learn from them, and uh, having them guide my development as well, um, because they are they are. Um, and also, like from a motivational standpoint, uh, like when you work on games in general, you tend to not have like thirty people behind you, like telling you what to do, right? Yeah. Um, but if you do have thirty people behind you, then you kind of feel some pressure to work, and you can't just like go on Twitter for I don't know two hours. <laughs> um, so you know, I think it's a, it's a very good motivator as well. Um, and then you know, all of the positive interactions with the community is really nice too. So yeah, I, I get a lot out of it, and I hope the viewers get get that too. So uh, you said it's not a neat corporation project, um, mm-hmm. but uh, what? So what's next for neat corporation? Um, I don't know if I can talk about that. We haven't really publicly <laughs> announced stuff yet, so I don't, I don't think I can do that, I'm afraid. We won't tell um, anybody. <laughs> we are working on things. Okay. <laughs> That's something I can say. <laughs> cool. Uh, can you talk yeah. at all about, um, uh, I mean, your, the big project is budget cuts, but is Neat Corporation mm-hmm. a VR studio? <laughs> We've had conversations about that too. Yeah. Um, it's this, uh, it's a bit of a weird balance. I guess for, um, 
I guess it depends on like how much you lock yourself down when it comes to investors. Like if you have investors who are VR specific, or mm. if you need like funding from like um, like um, like Oculus or HTC or any of the other platforms, right? Then then that might be a good incentive because we've kind of uh, you know we as an, as niche corporation has kind of put ourselves out there as the you know a VR studio. Um, but um, but yeah, I don't know. We've had a lot of conversations about this internally as well when it comes to you know should we make a VR game or not um, sure. because they're there are a lot of ideas we have that are not VR. And then it's like, do, do we want to do this? Or can we do this? Should we do this? Um, how does this look externally? Um, you know, that there, it, it is a weird place to be in um, when, you know, when you have an idea that's not VR and then everybody expects us to make a VR game next. Um, right. But uh, yeah, so, so uh, we're, we haven't really landed on that, but <laughs> you know, we are, we are very much focused on VR in general though. So because sure. that's, um, you know, we have set that profile, and um, and I think a lot of people expect us to make a VR game. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's leaning that way. And hopefully, but, but it, then, it continues to align with your interests, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> but that's also a big problem because I don't <laughs> like working in VR. <laughs> yeah. it's, very, yeah, it's a burden for the most part. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so if I want to make some sort of audio thing in VR, then you know, it's like, okay, I sit on my computer, I type some code for the audio, I trigger it when this happens and this happens. Um, and then, okay, then I want to test this. So I hit play in Unity, then I have to walk over to my VR space, and then I, you know, I have to put on the headset and then, then plug in some headphones because those were not included in the VR in the beginning, <laughs> and then put on the headphones and then not get tangled in the cables, and then pick up the controllers, and then, you know, <laughs> go to the location where I had to go to to test the audio, and then I do the thing that takes like 0.5 seconds just to test an audio clip, and then they're like, oh, it doesn't work. <laughs> Put down controllers, take off the headphones, take off the headset, walk back to my computer, and you know, go back to the code. And it's like it's such like it's such a shitty process. <laughs> I don't like that, but uh, but yeah, it's mostly like for practical reasons. Um, but then, like from a design perspective, it's mostly like we have to think of ideas that need VR. Again, I think that's very very important. Yeah. Um. So that's mostly like the design process of why. Um. Like there are a lot of game ideas out there that I I do want to make that are not VR. Um, and like forcing VR on top of that, I think that's a very bad idea. Um, I think, I think VR kind of needs to be, um, it can, it shouldn't be like, oh, we, we have to make a VR game and then we design a game, um, because we need to use VR in a game. Um, it should be kind of like, we want to make this experience and then do we need VR for this? And it's like, oh yeah, we actually do need VR for this experience. Otherwise we can't give this to the players. Um, so if I feel like VR should be a necessity that comes like, you know, secondary to game design rather than being a primary thing before game design. Mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. There may be one or two of our listeners who don't know where to find you on the internet. So where can they go mm-hmm. to find you? I am on Twitter. It's uh, twitter.com slash Freya Hallmer. Uh, People won't be able to spell that. You're going to have notes on well, there. Yeah. We'll put <laughs> <have> the notes. <laughs> just send you all of my social media things and then <laughs> like the links below and like, comment, and subscribe. <laughs> all right. That's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or nice like us. We need to know you're out there, so leave a review and tell all your friends too. Hey, Freya, will you leave a review and tell all your friends too? <laughs> 
Oh, oh God. Uh, well, I guess I sort of am right now. I'm live streaming. so <laughs> <laughs> Obligation fulfilled. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter and all the other things at Nice Games Club. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, send us your topics and ask us your questions. Lastly, you can find out more about the show, your nice host, our nice guest, as well as get all the links and notes from this and other episodes at NiceGames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. <laughs> thank you thank you so much for having me yeah, yeah. It, was, it was so brilliant to have you it was mm-hmm. so so fun so much fun yeah, yeah i'm was... still streaming by the way <laughs> yes <laughs> let me know yes. if you want to talk about something that's confidential or whatever we could do the after show something like <laughs> yeah no this is fine uh, uh, well i guess if there are people in the chat right now if you do have any questions i mean i guess you can post them now um uh, unless you all have to go or something no we no. can hang out for a couple yeah. minutes yeah and you can ask questions to the podcasters as well yes How's your podcast going? What do you do in general? What's your focus? Uh, Well, we do uh, two types of episodes. We'll do our interview episodes like we just did with you, uh, where we just pick a topic and then spin off into others. (laughs) Um, And then we do our roundtable episodes where we have two topics that that are uh, brought by uh, two of the three of us. And we, uh, we dig in deep on those. Oh, then we have a third type. We have the video episodes. That's right. And we sometimes do video episodes. Um, and those are different um, as time goes on. The ones we're doing now, Martha, you can describe. Oh, um, so we do kind of, it's like a post-mortem on a, on a game or a game that's still in development. Um, and we like have developers come in and then show like their code and like any cool like design things that they're working on or tools that they made and stuff. Yeah, so. I think I saw that. There, there was uh, there were some videos where you know people like actually literally scroll through their code. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we get a lot of oh my god, scary. I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. And the idea it's a very is scary process to do that. But, yeah. <laughs> the idea behind that is that we can we show our 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 viewers. Uh, you're not the only one who writes garbage. <laughs> it's, well, yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that's the thing, that. you know. But um, but to give people the confidence because I think it's really easy. You were describing in the show like how. Um, people think you know everything because you've had yeah. some results and some success, but um, mm-hmm. you obviously don't know everything and you're, 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 you're uh, um, free with that information to people. And I think it's important to tell beginning game devs, people who are struggling, people who are not part of a community, that like there isn't really a minimum threshold. Mm-hmm. You can get started and you can make all those mistakes, but you can, you can, you can do it. Yeah, and that's a, that's a yeah, big theme sure. of our show yeah. is is that you can do it. <laughs> yeah, because if yeah, we can do it, you know? <laughs> like a lot of games are just like a bunch of cardboard duct taped together, right? Yeah, and yeah. there's nothing, and then it suddenly works in the end. It's yeah, amazing. Like, even, even this works, but and um and like once you um like there there are so many like YouTube tutorials or you know how how to guides or whatever, and they they kind of always show the like optimal way of doing so- something rather right. than like the practical quick way of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the epitome of like all of the um uh like sorting algorithms, right? Um, where it's like you have all of these different ways of sorting things, and then you're like, well, in practice, I just <laughs> I just use a link sorting or whatever, yeah. uh, like whatever's built into C sharp, and I'm going to use that, and then I move on, or I copy and paste from you know whatever website has it, right? right like Stack yeah. Overflow. Right. Uh, that's how it works, right? <laughs> uh, that's how you do it in practice. Um, so, so yeah, there, there are a lot of um, there seems to be a lot of uh, content out there that seems to be like idealized game development and like show it in nice packages, but it's kind of like it's very hacky almost all the time. Um, yeah, and there's some which value. Is something I kind of yeah, I think there's value in showing that, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of what I'm doing in my stream as well. 
because um, like game development is not always fun. It's sometimes mm-hmm. it's it's like kind of you do rote stuff that's kind of boring and weird. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it there's some value in doing that on stream too as well. Because any kind of if somebody's curious about game development and they see they see that I I don't know, I sit for like 20 minutes to drag references in Unity components. And it's like, <laughs> well, that, that's what game development is like sometimes. Um, but um, but I think the nice way of making it interesting, I guess, is to, I don't know, always talk about what you're doing or talk about something completely different on stream. Um, and I think that helps make it a bit more entertaining and, and um, interesting for the people watching. Uh, but I, I do remember if anybody, um, like if any of you were to do streaming while developing something, I think it's pretty easy to like, um, it's pretty easy to fall into the trap of just working on interesting things um, because yeah. you want to entertain your audience. Um, and I think you have to be really careful not just not to go down that route because then you're just you're just going to polish, right? You're just going to make something look pretty, and then um, then you end up having to scrap it. But then, well, you spent a lot of time doing this on stream. A lot of people saw you do this, so you want to keep this in the game. And then you end up not cutting <laughs> things that you should be cutting, and you're not working on the boring features because it's not as fun to watch. And so, so I've been trying to make sure that I even work on the boring parts too. At least make sure that the audience I have have the patience to watch that stuff instead <laughs> right, of just right. catering to the people who want like the um, the candy of game development. I mm-hmm. guess seems yeah. like the the secret to that is routine, right? If you're if you're streaming regularly, then you're less likely to try to make each one the the special presentation. Yeah, there's of course like a bit of a balance to strike there as well. Um, I think with streaming, it kind of caters itself better to you know the kind of unprepared, very like rough around the edges type of format. Uh, whereas if I were to release stuff on YouTube, I would I would like spend a lot of time like polishing things and making things look very pretty. Right. Uh, but on, on Twitch, it's more like well, it's more like you just shoot off things and see what happens, right? Um, and and on Twitch, people seem to be more patient as well. Whereas on YouTube, you need to like pull their attention immediately, and it's yeah. a very different type of audience, I think. Right. So yeah, um, it, it's very different. Yeah, I've considered trying that just because people have said it has some success, but I I'm not a, a Twitch user, and so. I feel like um, I would have to get a little more familiar with the the conventions of that before I gave that a try. Yeah. Um, or I could yeah. just start and fumble through it. I suppose. I guess that's that's the thing I tell other people to do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I do. Yeah. I, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm fumbling through this. Yeah. What got <laughs> you started kind of doing it, up it as I go along? What's that? What got you started doing it? I guess it was to to in the beginning it was mostly to motivate me. I think mm-hmm. uh, because I, I did streaming before, like before Twitch, when it, there was um. Uh, what was it called? There was Justin TV and there was Livestream.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I was live streaming on Livestream.com game development like ages ago. Oh, that's so oh cool. God, I hope people won't fr- find my profile. Nothing <laughs> 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 saved from that. Um, but yeah, so that was like a really long time ago. And I never like did that regularly or got into it. And, you know, I was kind of shy. I didn't want to talk on microphone. I didn't want to have a webcam or whatever. Um, but um, but then I kind of started getting the sense of you know feeling more motivation while streaming because you feel more pressure. Um, so I wanted to experiment doing that now again when I started working on Flowstorm. Um, so yeah, I just tried it and it was a lot of fun. So I just kept doing it. Uh, so yeah, uh, and I think it's been working really well. Stephen, yeah. any questions rolling? No, <laughs> they don't like us. Oh, that man. Does- I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the uh, what was the inspiration for the crab game? Oh, Cloudbreaker? What was the inspiration? Yeah. Oh, Mar- uh, uh, Ava was just like, let's make a game about crabs fighting. I yeah, think. she had like the whole idea in her head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was it a game jam project? It was yes. a game jam project originally. <laughs> the, yeah. the, right. I think the, the theme was beach or ocean or something like that. Yeah. 
tropical because it was like in the middle of November and it was freezing and we <laughs> <laughs> we needed something to get through that day I guess <laughs> so we yeah we came up with that idea uh, well Ava did and then we just made it and it worked and then we released nice. it it seemed very unique <laughs> seen anything like it. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool mm-hmm. but I really like those types of like uh, couch multiplayer games you kind of um it's very nice because you get a lot of like fun interactions for free. Like you don't have to write an AI or something. Oh, you can yeah. just have a different human play the other character, and then yeah. you know, the whole dynamic nature of like two agents with different motives are working against each other. I think it's super fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah, cool. we have a lot of those types of games that came out of this community. It seemed yeah. to be. I think mm-hmm. it was a, certainly a trend at some point, but like maybe about two years ago, a lot of us started working on those types of games. Yeah, um, yeah. Joggernauts just came out. Yes, on PC and Switch. Uh, I'm working on Metro Nexus, Vengeance, Vengeance is Clawbreakers out. Like the, a lot of those games are <clears throat> are are coming out now. Yeah, which is pretty good. It, yeah. It's super rewarding to to play them too, and mm-hmm. and they're um. I think it's interesting to. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to go on tangents now. Go for it. Cool. I think it's um. I think it's interesting how there are so few games out there that actually trigger emotions in people. Um, and like if you think about it, think about it. It seems like. We have we have horror games. Mm-hmm. They trigger fear and like to some extent anxiety as well, uh, which is interesting that people actually want to do these things and then overcome them, right? Um, and then there are like very few games that have like humor in them. If you think of you know the Team Schafer games or whatever, um, but then most games don't really like trigger emotions in us, right? <laughs> we mostly just sit there and do things. Um, but I, I think it's super fascinating when games manage to do this, and I feel like doing couch multiplayer, there's so much joy. In those types of games, and so much laughter that you like so rarely get when you're playing alone in a single player game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot of value to that. I think, uh, especially when you, if you want to like build a community around games as well, I think that's super fun. It's a really interesting way to look at it. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, that, that's a but that's it's a really good weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like you have a lot of movies, and movies almost always have this type of thing where you're supposed to feel like resentment towards something or feel the um, sad when something happens, but like. How many times have you cried to video games? I, I feel like you can count that on like one hand. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I, I think you, that almost never happens. Where, but but I feel like the um, the couch multiplayer type of deal is like where I've seen most potential for crying of happiness. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so much fun that you yeah. start crying. Right. You know, I bet um, that explains why yeah. humor is something that games lean on so heavily. I think about the like, open world games, particularly that are meant to be serious. Yeah, they, they live in these serious worlds, but they're but when you play them, they're absolutely goofy and mm-hmm. silly and mm-hmm. funny. Um, and I always find that as a big disconnect. But I guess the, the way you describe this sort of like need for any emotional response, humor is an easy way to get that. So that must explain a lot of why there's so much humor in games you wouldn't expect to find humor in. You know? Yeah, I guess it depends on like as a designer, like how much you want to make sure that you... I don't know. Have you heard of it, about the term uh, ludonarrative dissonance? Oh, yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, like, Stephen, so you're tired of that, right? <laughs> like, it's a bit of a trope. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but it's okay. a useful term. I, I think, um, uh, like, if you take a game like uh, like the Oblivion uh, or the Elder Scrolls series, yeah, right? yeah. I think a lot of the joy that people get out of that has nothing to do with the narrative of the game. Right. <laughs> like, you're not supposed to laugh at a ragdoll or laugh at a weird face somebody made, made right. right in like a serious situation but like but but in the end the net result of playing that experience is people having fun right even though that might not have been the intended design so i think there is still value in that mm-hmm. if only we could do it on purpose right then, yeah. then we'd really be somewhere yeah, <laughs> yeah i i think um, i think there are some um 
some games have done a similar thing. Um, I think, um, have you played the new Doom game? No. So, so the, the Doom series has always been kind of the, uh, you know, the fast-paced shooter type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't played the previous games, but I'm pretty sure they kind of went for a very story-based, more linear single-player experience. And they kind of tried to make this serious tone and have a story and whatnot. Um, but players were not really out for getting that. They just wanted to have this, the, you know, the, the stupid fun, right? Um, but in, in the new Doom game, they kind of just accepted that and went <laughs> all in. They were more like, all right, people just want to have fun. They just want to wreak havoc. And then we're just going to give them that. Um, and I think that's a really good thing to do. And they even have, you know, story segments in the game where they do this sort of intro where there's a, you know, there's a, panel in front of you where some character is talking about something quote-unquote important and the main character just takes the monitor and just shoves it into the side <laughs> of the <laughs> stuff, right? Um, so, you know, it, that's, I, I guess that would be like ludonarrative congruence or yeah. something where, yeah. you know, th- these things are tied together. The player just wants to kill stuff and have fun and then the character also wants to do this um, and just want to push the narrative to the side. I think that's, I think that's way better than like trying to turn the game into something that the player doesn't really want to just to like, I don't know, match Hollywood movies, storyline structures or whatever. Right. Um, right. So I think there are good examples of, you know, some games going out of their way to, you know, cater to what the player actually wants, right? Mm-hmm. And just like the designing um, VR UX to, to, to fit in the game design that you're doing with, you do the same with narrative design. Like, if you want it to be a serious story, you need to have mechanics that support that right. so that the player experience feels natural to that narrative and not, yeah. you know, incongruous. Have you um have you played Celeste? No, yeah. I, just, I need to play that. Clearly, it's like okay. it's like quiz time, and we're failing every question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, <laughs> but um, I'm gonna rate this this podcast like one out of five stars. <laughs> Didn't play Celeste one star. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, um, no, but Celeste is um uh is one of those few games that did make me cry um mm-hmm. very unexpectedly as well um and it, it's one of those games that also. It's incredibly, it's such an arcade style game. It's just a very tight platformer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story that they have is kind of minimal and it doesn't really get in the way, but it's also extremely effective at what it's doing. And what's happening in the story ties into your, the gameplay, like what your abilities are as a character and the, the way it feels to play the game. And the, the way they tied it together there is a very unique type of situation. I've never really seen any other game do it in quite that way. Where it, you know, the gameplay feels very arcade, and the story is pretty serious. Um, mm-hmm. It was just a really cool experience. Um, but yeah, so so if if you don't like platformers, you're gonna have a difficulty playing that game. But um, but uh, yeah, I think it's a really good example of you know tying everything together in a very nice way. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, speaking of not liking platformers, I wanted to say this earlier, but uh, Martha, you got a beta test. Freya's new game because you hate platformers but love racing games. It's true. So, <laughs> it'd be a good test case to see if it if it feels good. Yeah, I mean, I can send you a key if you want to. I, it's I, it's on Steam, so well, it's hidden on Steam, so only those who have keys can play it. Um, so yeah, I can, I can send you a key if you want to. Sure, I'll play test it. Although maybe people on stream are going to be mad at me now. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I tend, I tend to give keys to people who donate ten dollars. <laughs> well, I can donate. You $10. didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, shh, sh- just just say she did. <laughs> well, I will. Oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> oh god, going to be a revolt in my in the Discord community. <laughs> Someone's already mad. <laughs> yeah. But then I will have a rational conversation with them. I will not ban them. Right. Uh, <laughs> 
wait, what's our time actually? How long have we been on for? An hour twenty-five, almost an hour oh, thirty. Wow. So yeah. I mean, for us, that's not that's not bad. <laughs> We've yeah. I think our longest is like just shy of two hours. We've done that once or twice. Um, but this is I this is assuredly our longest interview episode. Mm-hmm. And we can make it longer. Let's <laughs> pick a topic, and then we can just like. Yeah. Say the word. <laughs> 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 New topic. How long should a podcast episode be? <laughs> <laughs> we have an expert to weigh in. <laughs> Let's talk about this. It is kind of an interesting topic, I think. Yeah. You, uh, yeah, yeah. Check out like the attention span of people who watch YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. I think it's super interesting to see like, you know, what type of content do people have patience to watch and what type of content do they not have patience to watch? Yeah. Um, and that that's also been like a fascination for me because I, I don't know I don't know who the audience of Twitch is. Um, like mm. I don't, I've never been the person who watches streams. So I'm like, what, what do you like? Cause it, it's weird to me that you would spend so much time watching somebody do something that's unprepared. So then it's not like, you know, it's not like YouTube where people spend hours making like a 20 minute clip. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, on, on Twitch, it's just like, eh, it's kind of low quality. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, but there are so many people who debate or like, um, uh, dedicate so much time into watching this. Um, which is it's hard for me to like know how to cater my content to the audience. Where whereas in in making video games, I'm like, well, I play video games, I enjoy doing them, so I know what to do to make like a good video game because I'm part of that audience. But on Twitch, I have no idea. I, I don't know how to do anything here. <laughs> but I, I suspect well. that um, with YouTube, we've seen the the audience engagement numbers on our YouTube clips. You know, they you have the hundred percent viewership at zero zero, and then it drops pretty quickly. And then we do, mm-hmm. once it, it settles, and then we have this plateau all the way to the end of the video. So our yeah. viewership on YouTube is not very high, but the people who do watch um, and get past like the second minute stick with us to the end. So I'm very happy about that. But, I think, nice. but I think for podcasts, like I listen to a lot of podcasts, and for the most part, I want to hear everything. But I know that I'm often doing something else, mm-hmm. and I'll sort of be half listening for a lot of it, especially the, the, less, the less produced podcasts, right? Um, and I think that's by does I think it's okay. And I imagine Twitch streaming, and it's just my guess. I imagine Twitch streaming is fairly similar. Where the reason people stick around and just leave it on for hours and hours is because they can just it can be their second thing. Um, oh, and, absolutely for Twitch, yeah. And but so I don't think you have to worry on. too much about catering exactly, yeah. or like yeah. awkward pauses or whatever. Like we on the podcast, I think we're very we try to be like really careful about you know dead air. Um, mostly because I'm paranoid about it, and these two let me be paranoid about it. Um, but I don't know how it's, if it's really a problem, <laughs> you know. Well, for a podcast, you can at least like edit it in post, right? Yes, yeah. and we yeah we or do that sometimes to get the yeah. Um, for streaming, that's harder. Uh-huh. Um, I do think that yeah, for for streaming, there are a lot of people who have it as a secondary activity. There are a lot of game developers in in the community, and and it seems like many of them just like oh they like sometimes tune into my stream while they're at work, and they just have it on a secondary monitor or whatever, and then yeah. hop in and out. So. Um, it is a very secondary activity. Uh, I'm not sure if I, I personally, I don't consume like audiobooks or podcasts the same way. Um, like for podcasts, I, or at least I, I personally always want to listen to every single bit of it. So yeah. if I miss like a sentence, I will have to go back. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't that's, know how common that's that my is. problem with podcast. <laughs> well, I, I feel similarly. I try yeah. to do that, but I, I know that I don't always. Yeah. And I know that on this show, I, uh, I know that there's going to be a lot of our audience who also drift in and out a little bit. Right. So I think even though uh, when we'd make callbacks, sometimes I'll, tr- I'll, I'll make an effort to sort of catch you up a little bit if you weren't paying a lot of attention when we were mentioning it earlier. Mm. Um, you yeah. can't really torture yourself with oh, that. Oh, yeah. But, um, but it, I do think about it sometimes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I, I do that a lot, a lot on Twitch. You know, we do get a lot of new people who are like, oh, what are you working on? And then I have to do the whole thing again. <laughs> what I'm working on. Um, but, um, you know, I tend to like try to do that as quickly as possible. And just I've gotten into a routine of showing the game now, um, which yeah. is useful, I guess. Um, yeah, for catching people up on podcasts or audiobooks, I think that's really hard. Uh, I guess audiobooks are, are people focus more on those, I think, than podcasts. Yeah, I have a real um, hard time with those. I try to listen to them when I go to sleep. And then like as soon as uh-huh. I miss a sentence, I'm like, literary experience ruined. Yeah. <laughs> I have to start over or whatever. And I just I No, wait, but that, that's perfect. As soon as you miss a sentence, that's when you should like turn it off and go to bed. Yeah, that's oh, true. Yes. And, and I think that's, um, I guess you just have to pay attention to when that happens. But um, <laughs> I always do like 100, 100% focus on, on the audio. And as soon as I notice that I missed a sentence, that I know that I'm about to fall asleep and then I just pause it. Um, where, which I guess it works for some people. For some people, they, they don't know when that happens. So they just fall asleep and then they miss the entire book. Yeah. But um, <laughs> you have to have a lot of self-awareness it, to do that. Yeah. It's like or just pay, pay attention, I guess. You know, you to <laughs> yeah, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if you could like... Pay attention, Stephen. <laughs> Don't like. Can Fitbits tell if you're asleep or not? Yeah. So, like, if you could if you could hook up your app to to like turn. have like a big alarm when you're about to fall asleep. No, like to turn off the no, just audiobook. Yeah. Oh, that's way more practical. <laughs> <laughs> like, why are we to wake you up when you're like? <laughs> like, I wonder what the distance is between like when you start dropping words that you're listening to and when you actually fall asleep. I wonder if yeah. that's like, maybe, like two minute period or if that's like a few seconds. For me, I know it's actually pretty long because I'll listen to podcasts when I go to sleep. And if I miss stuff, I don't care as much. But I will then after a while realize like, oh, I'm really drifting. I'm not paying any attention. It's just starting to be the elevator music of my dreams. I'll turn it off. And then I'll pick it up the next day and it will be like an hour, like I'll keep going back to where I recognize it <laughs> oh, no. and it'll be like an hour previous. And I'm like, I can't yeah. believe I still had some semblance of awareness of it, but missed that right. much information, <laughs> you know? That's wow. a really long time. Are you, are you okay? Can you sleep at night? <laughs> uh, not really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, that's, maybe, that, maybe I don't want to get into that. <laughs> hey, we're being open here. Yeah. Uh, no, I do have a very hard time sleeping. And that's one of the reasons I do listen to podcasts is so I can calm my right, brain yeah. so that I can, can fall asleep. Um, yeah, that's really good, though. Yeah, yeah. But you found some sort of way of dealing with it. So, yeah. <laughs> some sort of way is exactly how you describe it. <laughs> <Some sort of laughs> yeah. Just miss hours of podcasts and audiobooks. Yeah, yeah. There's certain podcasts I won't do it for because like those are the ones I really want to listen to. It's all my B tier podcasts right. that I'll that I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll throw on the 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 fire of my attempt to fall asleep. Yeah, I've never had B tier podcasts. I feel like that kind of like it ruins the whole purpose of a podcast. Like that's music to me. That, that's something you listen to and you don't have to pay attention to, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Words? Like I don't know. Why would you listen to words if you're not paying attention to them? You know, most of my B tier podcasts are video game podcasts. Because, like, right. I, you know, I, I read enough video game websites that, like, the, the This Week in Video Games podcasts, um, which hopefully we, we try not to be that. But those are the types of podcasts where, like, if I miss something, it's like, whatever, or there's an article on it somewhere. Yeah. Like, you know. Mm-hmm. It's on IGN or Kotaku. Yeah, something like that. Oh, just, like, to keep up with the news or something? Yeah, yeah. Like, they're, sometimes they're entertaining, but they're, they're, not, they're not vital to me because I get enough of those, that same news elsewhere, I guess. So that's right. what puts them in the B tier for me. Right, it's not like an eight-hour philosophical argument or something. Right, like right, that. right. I guess the yeah. exception to that is the Kotaku does a podcast, Split Screen, and I I really like listening to that one because the two guys on there are like they are they do proper analysis and they're less interested in jokes, and so that one I tend to pay more attention to. But the other pot, like I listen to a bunch of IGN's 
podcasts. They do a Nintendo one and a Sony one. Mm-hmm. They're all nice. I like listening to them, mm-hmm. but like I don't I don't mind if I miss big chunks of them, you know, because it's not. I'm, I don't feel like I missed a lot. Yeah, you know, which is I. I it seems like a mean thing to say about them, but uh, but that's it serves a good purpose in my life, so mm-hmm. I'm happy that it exists that way. I mean, it's like, better in your case than for me because I don't even listen to them at all. So <laughs> yeah. I listen to them a little bit is good, right? right. They're getting my download yeah. stats, so you should be happy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why not? Yeah, like like I don't care if people are on my stream like not paying attention at all. If they're here, then that's better than most people in the world. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Similarly, we don't. We really don't. We just we get because our uh, podcasts are just open RSS. Like we have, we do have statistics we can uh, go for and some usage location data, but like, it's very rough. We don't have a really good idea of who our audience is unless they contact us and which we do get sometimes, but you know, we, I don't know how many, much of our audience is just leaving it on as they fall asleep. Could be a big portion. I have no clue. Yeah. Yeah, It's a very, it's a very small, like minority of people who contact the, like the content creators of, you know, the content that they like. Yeah. It's very, like I had this, um, it's not really content creation, I guess, but whatever. It's I'm like I had this problem with Shaderforge where, you know, if, if there are studios that want to use Shaderforge, or at the time they would just buy it at the asset store. Um, and then I didn't really know about it. I just got stats <laughs> which mm-hmm. said, Oh, you got this many downloads and this much money, which is good, but I have no idea. Um I have no idea like who's using it. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing that tells me, oh, this company bought Shaderforge. Um Somebody, so I had like I had so many situations where, you know, I was at GDC and then there was somebody who was working at um, Blizzard who was like, oh, I'm using Shaderforge. And I'm like, well, why, why, why are you telling me this? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's like um, yeah, someone in our know. community made, uh, what was it, the chipmunk engine? Or oh, that's yeah. Andy and Scott. Sound yeah, yeah, and they ended up using it in like the redo of Chrono Trigger or yes. something yeah. and they found out by ha- seeing their like yeah, and Thing he bought listen. Chrono Trigger, yeah. looked at the credits, because he's like, I wonder what they used to port this. Oh, my word, they used my tool. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And it's like his all-time favorite cool. game. So it was, I mean, it's a cool surprise, but like, it, yeah, I mean, I guess there's no obligation, because it was, I think it was open source at that time, right? So somebody on the yeah, well, chat just awesome. yeah. messaged that they like our podcast a lot. Oh, lovely. Some cool. feedback. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we have community crossover. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> they said that they listen to the, the uh, podcast uh, during lunchtime when they're walking. Oh, oh sure. Nice. That's cool. Hopefully we can be <laughs> okay. a chill uh, lunchtime hang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, someone just described us. Doc, got it. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> can we just like hang out with you on stream every week? <laughs> I mean, if we want to break the world record, let's go for a week. <laughs> <laughs> This is good. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's the lesson. Is like uh, you, you know, tell your heroes the, that you like their work, and not that we're anyone's heroes, but like <laughs> you know, it can be easy to think of someone up there, like just you know, the creator, the uh, the other tier, but like we are all the same. Yeah, we all like to hear from people. Yeah, I kind of hesitate to say this because it's not really like economically true, but <laughs> <laughs> like I feel like when I was at uh, when I was at GDC, I would say that. Sh- it's very expensive to go to GDC and oh, not yeah. everybody by far can go to GDC. Right. Uh, but I did feel like everybody who was there was pretty much on the same level in some way. Uh, it felt like you could always talk to anyone. It didn't matter how many like followers they have on Twitter. It's like, oh, there's Rami, who I've seen on Twitter all the time, and you can <laughs> actually talk to this person and it's not weird. Um, so I feel like it, it put everybody on the same level there, which was really nice, I think. Um, yeah. And But yeah, I do think like the... Um, People are very like hesitant to give positive feedback. It's it's quite often 
uh, just expected of people. Uh, so I think a lot of content creators have like have no idea like how many people appreciate their work. The only thing they know is the amount of like people who use their stuff. Um, yeah. But uh, getting positive feedback from your community is like so rare. Um, and like even I don't know. I guess you notice this in playtesting too. It's hard to know when somebody is actually liking something. Uh, when I sell Shaded Forge, it's hard to know who's using it and how much they like it. It's just hard to tell. Like all I'm getting is like a bunch of support emails, right? <laughs> when we do playtests, sometimes we'll get a, a person who will spend a lot of time really getting deep on what they hate about it. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah. and then they'll always end that with saying like, oh, but I loved your game. <laughs> and, and, yeah. it, and sometimes that is the, that's sometimes the, in a playtest environment, people mm-hmm. will just play it. They'll think it's cool. They'll go away yeah. or they'll be shy to talk to you or whatever. But like the, yeah. very frequently when someone is in your face telling you what they hated, then, then it's easier to remember that, oh, but they're actually engaged. And then again, they'll actually tell it to you. Whereas you get the, the support request or the the email feedback that's bad. And then there's none of that follow-up and none of that caveat that like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. actually criticizing you because I'm interested in this right. and in its success. Yeah. Uh, and that's perhaps the rosiest way to look at it. I think so too, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's hard to know what the, just from the data you collect in any of these forums, it's hard to know what the actual state of appreciation or value that you're giving is. You know? It really is. And, and like given the discrepancy between like how much um, praise we tend to give versus how much criticism we tend to give. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also on the receiving end, like how how much more you think about and, you know, feel the negative feedback versus the positive <laughs> stuff where the positive is like, oh, that's nice, I guess. And then the negative stuff is just like, oh, my God, I got to fix everything. Everything's broken. I need right, to do right. this and this and this because yeah. they said this and um it's just like this massive discrepancy there uh which is hard to deal with Mm -hmm. we want people to tell us when they like something but it is like you described it's also easy when someone says oh i love your work you just go yeah thanks like it it, it, it's not always and it you feel terrible when you look back and like why didn't i appreciate that appreciation more but like it it really is contextual you know Mm -hmm. and and i i think that the um i've had to work on this as well i think it's easy to like not only just take the positive feedback and not care too much about it, but sometimes outright rejecting it. Yeah. Where it's yeah. like, oh, this is really good. And you're like, oh, I don't know. There's so many things left to do and it's kind of bad and this and this and this. And you're like, you're not really like receiving it even. Mm-hmm. You're still like hesitant to do that. Um, thinking about the negative stuff, I think is very, um, I think the reason we stick to it so much is because it's very useful when you're in a production environment. Because um, then that's basically your to-do list. Kind of. And it's good to keep that in mind in a way. Uh, Whereas the positive stuff, that's the stuff you're done with. You don't need to focus on that anymore. Um, Although you can, of course, argue that psychologically it's good to remember that people actually like the thing that you're doing. But uh, but yeah, like pragmatically for the type of work you do, I think it's useful to just, that's important to keep in mind. So I think that might be why we also like pick up on the negative feedback very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, sure. But that's my theory. I don't know (laughs) if that's any... (laughs) Of any use. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Well, just to let you, uh, my co host, know, we just got a YouTube subscriber, Turbo Pascal. If that's you in the chat, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, there there was somebody from chat, FD God, uh, subscribed on Apple oh, Podcasts. Yes. Uh, that was, yeah. Nice. Oh, maybe they did on YouTube as well. <laughs> so maybe, cool. yeah. There was somebody from, it was Outfrost yes. from, nice. uh, from the community. Yeah. Thank you. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. Cross promotion. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we quit while we're ahead? Um, maybe. Uh, where can you find Nice Games Club on Google Play? Google Play? Yes. I think you just searched yeah, for it. Yeah, people are asking about that. 
Uh, don't I think you have a link on your website? No. Uh, we do have a subs- uh, nicegames.club/slash/subscribe. Should give you a bunch of links. Most like third-party podcast apps, you can just search for us because it searches all podcasts everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, there's nothing we have to do special. But there's a couple of them that you have to do a little bit of uh, finagling with. I think Stitcher's one that I don't think we're on Stitcher because it's actually something you submit well, to. Um, we have a link on our website. Do we? So I hope we are. Oh, we are. Okay. Oh, no, it's Spotify. Spotify is the one we're not on. Oh, because uh, they started doing oh, podcasts. I was a while say ago. That. Why are you not on Spotify? Uh, because they have um, they, they you have to submit and be approved for them. And not that I right. think it's hard, but they're more curatorial. And I haven't really I just haven't gone through it. Um, I also think that I think the, you should. Yeah. I'm yeah, a little bit biased I, though because I'm in Sweden and I think we use Spotify more than other people but oh, um, sure. Spotify yeah. is very ubiquitous here so, okay well Steven uh, add that to the meeting notes for yeah. our next uh, clubhouse meeting we'll do. <laughs> um, I only listen to podcasts on Spotify actually yeah but I only listen to like two of them so I don't I'm mostly <laughs> like an audiobook person yeah nice Martha you mostly listen to podcasts just on straight from people's websites right on the, in the browser <laughs> just not a th- I don't <laughs> understand <laughs> it <laughs> Wait, wait. Then you don't get you don't save the playback position or anything, right? Or no, you I just, just keep the tab open in your browser. Or? Yes. <laughs> I mean, when I listen to the show, I do yeah. the same thing. Well, I mean, on my if I'm listening to it on my phone, I have Google, whatever Google the Google Podcasts thing. But mm-hmm. if I'm like, am I if I'm at work? Very often, I'm doing like HTML at work, and that like does not require as much concentration so um because <laughs> you're just marking up yeah things so i will listen to podcasts mm-hmm. while doing that so at- really? does that work that's cool <laughs> i've never been able to do that when i have to like do like javascript or like some actual like code code mm-hmm. then i can't then i have to turn it off right. or if i have to like write something that requires like using the the like language part of my brain right then then it doesn't work but if i'm like just marking something up and like putting things in tables and stuff then right then it I, works. I feel like you've reached like like the next level html <laughs> in that case that you're kind of like ignoring the letters and then you kind of just converted all of the like br and s tags into just being a symbol yeah instead of yeah. like a character that you have oh. to read um, wow, i, to- yeah, I, I have, totally i have that. the same thing so that there's no way i can write code and listen to somebody talk or listen to a podcast <laughs> or audiobook it just doesn't work. They're conflicting completely. It's kind of like um, like music is also something that just occupies my, or no, uh, playing music occupies my language center. If I'm playing music, I cannot talk at the same time. It just doesn't mm. work. It's weird. Like what part of the brains you're using? All yeah. The yeah. Well, I was talking about like ways to listen to podcasts. I guess if we've got our audience here on the stream, the one I recommend is Pocket Cast. It's, I think it's like $3 on iOS and Android. And it's just a great, just straight up podcast app. So when I, it's the one I use and I really like it. I think it was, uh, I think it was Martha who in her Twitter bio had a link to the RSS feed or something. Mm. Um, so oh, clever. Like, how does <laughs> yeah, that do that? <laughs> how does that work? Cause it's more, cause I was like, Oh wait, what is this? And I just see a bunch of like text. So if you click uh, an RSS feed in your browser, it will, whatever, however your browser handles it. So if you're in Firefox, you'll get actually a, 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 a kind of a version of our webpage where it has each episode. Right. If you do it in, in Chrome or Edge or any of the other browsers, you'll usually just get the raw uh, feed text, which is yeah, totally useless. that was what I was getting. I was um, like, well, well, how do I use this? If you click so, it on mobile, um, most of the podcatchers, your podcast app registers itself as a handler for RSS feeds. So that should just open it in your podcast app. Um, right. If, if you're on mobile. Oh, that's nice. 
Um, it's pretty good. But again, it's like not the same everywhere. And I guess that's the cost of the open standard, I suppose. Also, someone's getting cut. Oh, Mark, I, I think the cutouts are real. Uh, yeah, I can kind of patch it together. But but it's so weird. Like, it seems to be only you, Mark. It's that's, always only your voice that's cutting out. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, that's all right. You don't need to hear every word I say. <laughs> so I think what's happening is that it, this is probably like a selection bias because you're the one talking the most. So <laughs> I bet that's true. Yeah. When you talk, right? Yeah, it's that usually when there's a problem, it's because I'm talking the most. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I blame ghosts. It was ghosts. Yeah, ghosts. Yeah. My wife blames yeah. things on ghosts all the time. It's adorable. <laughs> I like the way you said that. She'll leave cupboards open and stuff, and I don't care. I just yeah. don't care. But she'll she'll like have this like alternate universe where I care. Yeah. And then she'll blame it on ghosts, and it's very cute. <laughs> oh, that's wait. You uh, this might sound silly, but but did you or do you believe in ghosts and or any form of like spiritual being that can affect the physical world? I don't. I don't believe in so, ghosts. Like, I'm agnostic. <laughs> okay. so, so so like, did you do that when uh, growing up, or like, like around what time did you drop those like superstitious beliefs with the ghosts and whatnot? I don't know that I ever. I, I was the pop cultureness of ghosts. Mm. It was never told to me as a child that it was possibly a real thing. Like it was always mm. presented to me as fiction. So I don't believe I. I don't think I ever believed in ghosts. Um, not because I was so like so smart or something, the... but it just. I okay. don't think it was ever presented to me as the thing that was a, that that made sense. I don't know. Yeah. What about you guys? I guess yeah. Ghosts don't make sense to me, so I don't <laughs> think that I ever believed in them. <laughs> well, when we. I was in theater a lot in high school and we would always like leave the ghost light on or whatever, mm. which is just so people don't fall off the stage. But like, <laughs> you know, when you're sitting there in the theater and like noises start happening, which are probably HVAC like components turning on. Yeah. But I don't know, kind of, kind of makes you think yeah. about like, maybe you're not alone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I, I remember having a lot of these thoughts growing up. I, I just uh, totally don't have them now. But but it's um, I just remember like I was so superstitious, <laughs> and like like even growing up in like a completely like non-religious society, um, there was just something about you know thinking about the spiritual that was so like exciting and mysterious. Yeah. Like maybe I just wanted there to be something weird. Um, but I remember like I was always, you know, when I heard a sound, I was like, oh shit, there's got to be something. <laughs> <laughs> It's such a weird belief. It doesn't really come from anything, I guess, apart from like movies or something. And mm -hmm. I just thought that, well, some of the things in movies happen in the real world. So <laughs> that's only logical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, better than thinking that there's like a like a someone with a knife behind the the bathroom door, right? That's true. Even though that's <laughs> what more Equal, likely than ghosts. Equally irrational, but slightly more likely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I heard people uh, talk about that uh, that there's um. There might be like evolutionarily, like there might be like some part of our brains that's catered to uh, believing things that might not be true mm -hmm. um, because it's more advantageous. Uh, because like in some cases, um, if you if you are in a very like primal society where there's like hostility that could be around every corner, if you hear a noise and you think that might be a threat, then you're probably more likely to survive than the person who goes, "Oh, there's nothing there." Right. Like, yeah, right. True. So there's some value in like naively believing that there could be a threat and then just always being ready for it. Beliefs that we would consider irrational, but in some cases in, you know, prehistoric society, then it might have been useful, right? Mm -hmm. And in a primal existence, the, the downside, which is just embarrassment, is not yeah. even a thing. Right, <laughs> so there's, yeah. there's no downside, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, unless sure. you scare yourself off a cliff. That, you know, right. but I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah. but you're not going to be like, you're not going to end up on like YouTube or something. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I went on like five different tangents. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to, I do want to keep going actually, but we, we actually, we have another episode to record yes. today. So we probably, oh, you do. for okay, our well, own okay. sanity, we probably should let you go. Um, yeah, well, feel free to invite me another time. But this yes, is let's. Well, we yeah. should definitely have you back. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a, a, a lot of fun. It's and, really fun. Uh, clearly, there's no exhausting the topics uh, we can uh, share with you. So um, <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I am stopping the recording now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.